Hello and welcome to the Do Podcast with me, Gav Thompson. Welcome to episode one of season two, which is entitled Being Amazing Despite, where we talk to people about some of the problems or hurdles they've overcome in order to achieve their amazingness. Let's get straight on with it. Our first guest on episode one is the comedian and podcasting legend, Adam Buxton. So, welcome back to the Do Podcast with me, Gav Thompson. Um, welcome back to season two. And my guest today, he sort of needs our introduction. It's Adam Buxton. He is a, a comedy legend from the Adam and Joe show back in the 90s. He then continued to be one half of the comedy double act that was Adam and Joe. Been a movie star in Hot Fuzz, Stardust and Son of Rambo. He's had his own radio shows on XFM and Six Music. He then went on to uh, make The Bug Show, both on stage and Sky Atlantic. And most personally for this conversation, he spent the last five years hosting the Adam Buxton podcast, which has won virtually every podcast award under the sun. Anyway, listen, thank you so much. Welcome to my new second season of The Do Podcast, Adam Buxton. Hey, thank you very much. That's a very generous uh, introduction. Thank you. Thank you. So look, I should declare to the listeners that Adam and I were at school together a long, long time ago. Adam is here because he's the one of the world's greatest podcasters, but probably the reason I managed to lure him into it was we were at school together. I last saw him in July 1982, which was the year my wife was born. So lots changed since then. But we, we were, for three or four years, at an amazing school, weren't we? We were, yes. It was a boarding school, co-educational boarding school out in Sussex. And my parents sent me there because... Their friends had children who went there, and my parents thought, oh, that's what you do. You send your children to that type of place. They hadn't been at boarding school themselves when they were little. My mum was from Chile. My dad grew up in a kind of working-class environment in Horsham, Sussex as well. And so that's not how they grew up, but that's what they wanted for us. So they packed us off to boarding school. And there's definitely worse places to go to boarding school. It was really a very beautiful place out in the rolling countryside. And and the students were, by and large, pretty nice. It was great that it was co-ed. It was mixed. You know, it was wonderful to be around girls who immediately, it became apparent, were much nicer than boys on the whole. The whole place was run by a very glamorous-looking headmaster and headmistress who were married and were known as Mr. and Mrs. Charles. I mean, it, it made a huge impression on me, initially entirely negatively. <laughs> what was it like for you going to boarding school, Gav? I, well, I was packed off age seven, which was Ooh. really young. Now, I had the advantage that my older sister was there. I really enjoyed Windlesham. I think with hindsight, sending your kid away to boarding school at age seven is probably not ideal. But my dad was in the army. We were moving around the world. It kind of made sense. So I was happy to be there. I loved the school. They kind of spoiled me a tiny bit. In the, when I kind of got there, they, I missed out the fours. So our school, they had fives, fours, threes, twos, ones. And they jumped me from the fives to the threes, which, although at the time I thought was fabulous, I think with hindsight, 
it just made me even more annoying and pretentious and arrogant than perhaps I, I would have been, which is hard to imagine. Um, Didn't you I, get upset, like, being away from home and having to sleep in dormitories and all that shit? I cried like a baby for, like, the first two weeks. And do you remember there was a rule? You and Claire came at the same time, right? This is my sister, Claire, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so the rule uh, she, was... She came a year after. Okay, so the, you, she'll know the rule. Maybe you remember the rule. The rule was if you when you joined with an, and had no older sibling there... You were allowed to see them before you went to bed every night. They were allowed to come and visit you in your dorm for two weeks. And then at the end of the two weeks, shutters came down and you were on your own. And I and cried. Then after that point, you had to beat them to sleep. You literally, it was hardcore. So I, I cried a lot. Um, but I, I, I had, a, I really, I loved it, man. I mean, still two of my best friends are from Windlesham, actually. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, which is... Headmaster and headmistress. <laughs> No, I'm one of them's no longer alive, I'm afraid. Yeah, no, they they were they were it was a phenomenal school, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, I ended up having a great time. It's very intense, but I mean rightly or wrongly, I do trace back quite a few of my more major neuroses to being sent to boarding school. It might be just a convenient way of shirking responsibility for being a bit of a dick, but I think that the experience of being separated from your parents at that age you were seven. I was nine. Yeah. I think it's pretty devastating, really. It's not, it's not normal. I wouldn't do the same to my kids. Yeah. Really. yeah. Anyway, but, but, it, but it certainly was like, um, once we were there, it was pretty fun on the whole. And so Mr. Davidson in your book, he introduced you to which artist? Musical artist? Oh, yes. So um, Mr. Davidson, not his real name, was a kind of, in my mind... Dead Poets Society style, inspirational, passionate English teacher. And one of our early lessons with him, you reminded me of the class system. I forgot that it was fives, fours, threes, twos, and ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With ones being the most senior. Yeah. So you're aged around 11 or 12 at that point. And that's your final term at the school or final year. And when I got to the ones... We had Mr. Davidson, and he was a kind of... I remembered him as being sort of unshaven, disheveled, breath smelling of alcohol and cigarettes, being like a kind of Serge Gainsbourg type yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dissolute. A lot of strong things. smell of, of Rollies or, or Gitan yeah. or something, right? But then, then a friend of mine, my friend Patrick, who used to take a lot of photographs. He sent me a photograph that he'd taken of Mr. Davidson. He doesn't look like that at all. He's just a young guy and he's pretty he's pretty neat and he's got a nice little suit on and he's clean shaven. So I don't know. Maybe one day I saw him with a slight five o'clock shadow and extrapolated that memory. But Mr. Davidson, one day when we came into English class, he just eyeballed us. We took our seats looking at each other going, what's Mr. Davidson up to? He didn't even say hello or anything. And then he just goes over to a record player and he lifts the arm, sets it down on the record. And then the first bars of the song Ziggy Stardust from the album Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars blast out and he goes over to the blackboard and as the song is playing, he writes down the lyrics. Ziggy played guitar, jamming good with Weird and Gilly and the spiders from Mars. He played it left hand, but made it too far. And we were watching him do this and we were like, what the shit is going on? Because 
A, the music sounded transgressive. I was into the charts very much at the time and the top 40, loved all that. I hadn't really heard any kind of retro rock. I'd heard Bowie being played in another class, actually, at the same school. In the art class was where I first heard Bowie. And the art teacher put on Scary Monsters, which had just come out. I remember being very intrigued by that. I'd never heard music like that. I'd only heard chart music and the music my parents used to listen to, which was Frank Sinatra and that kind of thing, or Wagner in my dad's case. So exposure to Bowie was great. And then we sat there with Mr. Davidson after the song had finished and we talked about what the lyrics meant and we analyzed the lyrics in the way that you would a piece of poetry. And it was thrilling, you know, and also the lyrics contained the line, so where were the spiders while the fly tried to break our balls? And it's like, <laughs> he said balls? Jesus, this is an English lesson and he, we, we're allowed to say balls. And it was great. So it was on the one hand, I just couldn't stop giggling and thinking, Hmm, I don't think this is appropriate because I was quite a conservative little fellow in some ways. Maybe that's why I didn't go for the nude swims. <laughs> and then the other part of me was just thinking, wow, this is absolutely great. We're being treated like adults and this music is interesting and weird and it is possible to take this kind of thing seriously and to analyze it in the same way that you would a piece of poetry or a piece of literature and that was going completely counter to what my dad had given me to understand, which was that all pop culture was a load of shit. So it was great. I loved it. Yeah, no, he did the same with my, my class with um, Simon and Garfunkel, America. Exactly the same ah. shtick. It was a great thing. You'd walk in, there'd be this dead silence, and then you'd put them. That's the way I remember it. Yeah, I put the song on exactly the same. It was a great technique. Yes, it was very, very cinematic and dramatic, and it made a big impression. I remember him occasionally getting quite irascible. Oh, he had a temper on him, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, he, he <laughs> and also he, he used to take us around to his house and we'd watch weird, like, art videos. Do you, did that happen with you? Not again, yeah. that sounds wrong. He'd bring us around and he'd sit there in the corner smoking fags and we'd watch some That's right. crazy stuff, yeah? He had one of the first yeah. VCRs that I ever remember in his flat. He was a good guy. Do you guy. remember any of the videos he showed you? I kind of don't. I just remember just going... This is cool. He's sitting in the corner smoking. I'm sure I don't know what they were, Rollies. But we were just watching just slightly weird experimental sort of... He was just a very, very cool guy, actually. And, and like you, I remember him well. He didn't quite set me off on a... I mean, your relationship with Bowie is, is quite well documented. The Simon and Garfunkel never quite did it for me. Um, <laughs> but, but he was a good guy, actually. And then, yeah, again, in the book, there's a couple of other things I just wanted to touch on, which... Sure. One is the, the snogging, which, again, I remember well, but can you just tell us your memories of the snogging? Well, because it was co-ed, that aspect of what children get up to in their spare time, that was a big factor. And it was managed to a certain degree by the teachers. You know, they were sort of on the lookout for big snogging spots. Bigger snogging opportunities tended to be the films, which yeah. they would End of -term film. show on the weekends in the gymnasium, and they'd pull down the blinds and everyone would sit there in the dark watching whatever film they had. I remember films like One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing and some of the airplane films. They used to show quite a lot of disaster films, which freaked me out. I wrote about <laughs> them in my book. And 
I loved it. You know, I'd, I'd watch most of those films, but some of the older children would sit at the back and they would have snogging sessions. I ended up sitting next to my girlfriend, Alison, during one of those films at the end of term. The end of term film was a big deal. It was like prom night, you know, and you'd have to negotiate for months beforehand about who you were going to sit next to. Who are you going to sit next to in the end of term film? I think I'm going to sit next to Mike. And then it, Mike would get a better offer and it would be like, oh, no, you bastard, Mike. Anyway, or I've got no one to sit next to. I'm a loser. And you'd end up sitting in the middle with all the squits and the losers. But it was a big part of the whole thing was snogging. And I was really into it. I just remember thinking, this is the best. Human contact with a person I like. And it just felt thrilling and transgressive. At that age, you're not sort of super randy, I don't think. It's more innocent and magical, I think. I don't know. Did you? Um, my memory of it yeah. was was we'd go into a certain room, often the green room behind the theatre. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and there'd be like 10 couples on there, and you'd just all be standing up. It was must have looked very strange. And someone would sort of turn the lights out, and then we'd just go, and we'd kind of go for like 20 minutes, half an hour, just literally just snogging wow, and then wow, wow. yeah literally yeah. and then and then someone, and then it was like we had to go off to do prep or something and then it would stop and then we'd turn the lights on and that was it and you're right it wasn't randy or sexual it was just a it was something you did it was a kind of rite of passage but it was a lot of fun i do remember then i when i went off to wellington afterwards which like westminster was boys only and most of my peers at wellington were like what you've snogged loads of girls and it was mm. it was very normative at windlestrom but later on yeah, did you have the same experience? Yeah, I felt very sophisticated. When I arrived at Westminster, which was an all-boys school, at least until the sixth form, I felt like a kind of uh, groovy, sexy superstar. And I think I antagonized the other boys in my dormitory by telling them stories about all these snogging sessions. It was unusual to have had so much snogging at that, you know, up to the age of... 12 or something before the age of 12 I was very experienced so I was telling these other guys who I thought were super nerdy and all they knew about was football and just boring stuff they were into and I was into like romance and love and <laughs> women and snogging and I understood women and what made them tick and I wanted them to know about it and I would tell all these stories and then I got teased fairly mercilessly and that was beaten out of me <laughs> Um, but I really missed it. Being in in a all-male environment for the next three years until girls arrived in the sixth form was miserable. I hated it. I really missed that atmosphere. You know, the fact that the the testosterone just gets watered down when, when girls are around all the time. And because it's boarding school, you know, it's not like you're going home at the end of the day and hanging out with your mates and playing football in the park and you don't really see any girls except maybe when they wander by and you'll whistle at them or I don't know. It wasn't like that. You couldn't get away with being like that. You had to adjust to treating each other properly. That's not to say that there wasn't a great deal of not treating each other properly that yeah. went on. But, yeah, it, it marked you out when you were compared to other boys who hadn't had that experience. So, Adam, that's enough about us reminiscing around about school. Look, the reason I wanted you to talk to you, actually, was because you are one of the kings of podcasting. You, you sort of invented the genre, I think. 
and I would like some tips. <laughs> I, I'm, I would, I'd take issue with that, but thanks. It's, it's pretty well. I think you're, you're amazing. <laughs> um, I'm conscious that I haven't really got a clue what I'm doing. You know, the, the backstory, I was unemployed over the summer. I went to see my friends, David and Claire, who set up the Do Lectures. I was feeling a bit miserable about life. And they said, look, you know, can we help? And I said, I'd love to do something. And I said, how about podcasts? And at that moment, a flock of birds flew overhead of Cardigan Bay. And it was one of those weird moments. It was a bit like Man of Two Brains. Show me a sign, you know, when the, the, mm-hmm. the picture spins around. And the birds oh, yeah. suddenly formed in this arrow pointing at us. And as the, the wings flapped, as I said, podcasts, and we all just they went. formed themselves into the word podcast. They did. And it was amazing. Was a, I know. A I'll picture of my face next to them, like the <laughs> opening credits of Hannibal. So at pigeons. that point, we said, Gav, do the podcast. And I kind of ran at it pretty quickly. Within two weeks, I'd yeah. done the first one. My first sort of theme was quite cheesy, which was the person behind the story and the story behind the person, which even as I did the first one, I was like, I don't really like this because it's bland and generic and whatever. So I wanted to rebrand, you know, my working title is Being Amazing Despite, because I think that has a bit of jeopardy in it, has a bit of reason to get under the skin of my guests. Beyond all that, I wouldn't mind you just giving me some tips on what, you know, you're 132 podcasts in, you've won loads of podcast awards. Can you give me some tips for being an amazing podcaster, please? For me, I like listening to conversations that feel as if they can go anywhere. I mean, you know, I like listening to well-made, straightforward interviews as well. It's not as if, like, I just only listen to free-form, rambling conversations. But I do like listening to stuff that's like friends talking at the pub or whatever. I like the tangents that can happen. I like the going down cul-de-sacs. And I like the variety of tone that you can have. You can make each other laugh but you can also get quite serious, you know, like a real conversation. Yeah. So I suppose I'm always trying to get as close to that as I can. But every now and again, I have to remind myself that it might not be appropriate, especially if I don't know the guest very well. So sometimes on my podcast, I have a combination of guests, some of whom are old friends, some are acquaintances, people that I might have done comedy shows with once or twice or met via social media or something like that. There's some connection there. But other times I reach out to people who I don't know at all and they don't know me. I suppose a good example might be Michael Lewis, who is an American writer. He wrote a book called Moneyball, The Undoing Project, a great book about these Israeli psychologists. And I talked to him about that, but he didn't know who I was. He'd never heard of me. So it wasn't appropriate for me to go in there and wang on about myself and my life and things that have happened with the children as much as I would normally do. Right. Because usually with a guest, you know, it's not like a straight interview where the interviewer keeps quiet as much as possible and just asks short questions and allows their subject to talk as much as they want. With me, I'm just as important as the guest. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we're both telling each other stories. And if I have something to say, I'll I'll jump in. But yeah, other times I just have to slightly keep a lid on it. I don't always manage it. Sometimes I listen back to conversations that I've recorded and I think, oh, shit, there's a lot of me in there and there's not enough of the guest. 
And that is sometimes one of the reasons that I don't put an episode out because I record more than I put out. Like I don't put everything out as well. Sometimes I might just sit on the episode for a long time because I feel weird about it after I've recorded it. But then I listen back after a few months or whatever, and it sounds totally different. I mean, it's not ideal that because it tends to cause problems and make the guest feel a bit disrespected if they've recorded something with you and then it just doesn't go out for a while. They're like, oh, what's the problem kind of thing. Um, but I do try and warn guests now that that's the way it might happen so they don't get freaked out. And um, how, how, if if yeah. there's a guest that doesn't know you, I mean, do, how do you approach them? You just email them out and just go, hi, I'm Adam, do you want to be on my show? Well, I mean, I'm now in a nice position in that I'm on the radar somewhat. So, you know, if someone has a book out, then there's a chance they might reach out to me. And if it's the right time, then I'll say, yeah, great. Other than that, I don't know. When I was on social media, I used to get in touch with people via Twitter every now and again. But now I'm not anymore on social media. I just have to send emails to agents, do it that way, or maybe go through friends occasionally but that's i mean i'm i'm really uncomfortable with all of that i don't i've got too big an ego to really prostrate myself if that's the right <laughs> word and beg and say oh you know so and so can you can you ask them to come on my podcast it's like ugh. i'd rather just chat to someone no one's ever heard of but i'm going to have a fun conversation you know what i mean when there's a couple i've listened to of yours where i've sensed they weren't going quite as well as you would have anticipated. Now, clearly, they're not awful at all. They're great because you put them out. But there's there's a couple I don't I can name them if you want. Where where I think one of them you went on good form, and one of them the guest just wasn't very chatty. Sure, sure. Go ahead, name name names. So I think with Nile Rogers, I mean, you called it out yourself. You were not on your A game that day, and or he was not a very good guest. But I sensed the normal Adam Buxton banter. That he just wasn't having it, right? Well, he was perfectly nice, but I think he was busy. He does an awful lot of interviews. He didn't know who I was, really. And I think he probably just wasn't in the mood to answer all these same questions that he gets asked all the time. And there was time pressure. His PR people were sat in the studio at Abbey Road where we were recording and kind of tapping at their watches every now and again. So it was really not a relaxed atmosphere. Yeah. And that makes it very hard to have a easygoing, friendly conversation. But we did get there. It ended up being really good. And so after about half an hour or something, like he wasn't even looking at me for a while. He, he wasn't even making eye contact. He was just sort of answering questions and looking at his phone every now and again. <laughs> but then after a while, either because he was more relaxed or he just maybe warmed to me and the conversation, I hope, he sort of looked up and he got much more engaged and he started enjoying himself a bit more and then the conversation got going. And it turned out to be a really good episode, I thought. But I did mention it felt a little bit awkward to me after I'd got out of the interview. I mentioned that in the intro. And you've got to be very careful when you do that, I think, because you are then setting up an expectation for the listener, which is very hard for them to get out of. So I try as much as possible to be fairly neutral 
when I'm doing the intro. I mean, I've done it before and I did it on that episode, but I don't sort of go, oh, this one didn't really work out. I mean, I didn't, I didn't trash it. No, and that, I'm think. probably very guilty of that. I think I've got, I had a kind of confirmation bias. I heard you say that. Yeah. And, and no, that I, does, I mean, that, that, that really does happen. And I would say that's a good tip is be aware of the fact that you as the host, part of your job is to kind of manage expectations and to remember that you are creating the atmosphere that your listener is going to partake in for however long they listen. You've got to be careful that you don't set up their expectations too much or prejudice them in too many ways. Sometimes I listen to podcasts and they say, oh, this is a really good one. Oh, I'm so pleased with this one. I'm <laughs> finally got this guest and it's great. And it's like, yeah, okay, fine. I can see that they're really excited. But that immediately kind of, of puts all the other episodes on a lower level. Like, oh, those guests weren't that great. But finally, I've got a good one. <laughs> That's really interesting, actually. I hadn't thought of that. I mean, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and then the other one was, was Matt Berry. I, I sensed when you were interviewing him, he's just not a very chatty guy, right? There was a few moments in it where it was just a little bit... He was kept referring to people that, you know, and events that were not... You know, I felt you were trying to rein him back on to something more interesting. I mean, it's a long time ago, right? Yeah, um... Well, he doesn't do many podcasts, Matt, I think. And I think the reason he doesn't do them is because he doesn't particularly enjoy that medium. He doesn't really want to talk about himself very much. He's certainly one of those people who expresses himself via what he does, via his comedy and via his music. And he's not that fussed about just being Matt Berry and coming on and doing bants. Yeah, yeah, I got <laughs> You know, it just that. doesn't suit some people. But... I just think he's great, and I thought, okay, even though this might not be as kind of free-flowing and easygoing as some other ones, I just think that it's still worth chatting to him because I just love the sound of his voice. No, he's a, he's a legend, and I, I, his normal voice is obviously not the voice that we all know and love. There was a funny moment in that particular one, and we are talking five years ago, right, or four and a half years ago. I used to be the CMO of Paddy Power, um, oh, yeah. and we had approached him to be our campaign vehicle. And for some reason, I don't know why, but we thought he was going to say yes. And as you heard in that episode, he was like, I'm not selling my soul to the devil. I'd never do anything like gambling or booze. I was at the time thinking, shit, I'm, I'm, I feel really awkward now that we even bothered approaching him. And actually, I also pretty sure that your name was on that list as well. And we we may have approached you and you may also have given us pretty short shrift, actually. I don't think anyone gets offended to be asked. I'm sure it's mainly flattering. I don't know anyone who would judge another actor for doing those kind of things. Maybe I do know some people who would judge them, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an individual decision, isn't it? And my principles, such as they are, are very nebulous and flexible. And I'm sure I contradict myself sometimes in the things I choose and the things I don't. But, I mean, we got K-Van to do it, and he did a really good job, actually. He was amazing. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, with that, with advertising and voiceovers and things like that, there's so many examples of legendary figures that are hugely well-respected who people forget did all sorts of commercial jobs, voiceovers for all sorts of things, booze and, I don't know, murder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we still love them. campaign. 
thanks, Adam. That's really helpful advice. Yeah, I've got many more hurdles to get over before I get to um, probably dealing with some of those high-class problems. But I appreciate your top tips. And look, if this is the first of the new series, the theme being being amazing despite, can you, for the listeners, just give a few examples of you are obviously amazing, you are at the top of your game. Give us a couple of the despites, things that may have happened that may have thrown you off course or may have been challenges to overcome. Well, I mean, I should say, first of all, I think I do need to acknowledge the good fortune that I've enjoyed throughout my life. And I do feel very fortunate just because of the family I grew up in and the advantages and opportunities that they afforded me. So, you know, I had everything going for me. And in some ways, I feel a little guilty that I perhaps didn't make more of those opportunities. I don't know. Sometimes as a silly person, as a comedian, you go through moments where you feel like, what the hell am I doing? I'm really not contributing in a useful way to society. I'm just doing jingles about biscuits. But (laughs) then um, on the other hand, sometimes people will get in touch with you and they'll tell you stories about times that they enjoyed listening to the podcast or it cheered them up when they were very unhappy. And you just think, well, yeah, that's exactly the point. And that keeps me going. As far as adversity, I'm not the best at a lot of things. And I do feel quite mediocre a lot of the time. You just sort of plod on. I think that's the best bit of advice you can give anyone, especially if they feel a bit... Because for the geniuses out there, for the people who are just naturally gifted and were born being wonderful at what they do, they've got other fish to fry. You know, they've got to manage their talent. That's a challenge in itself. But for someone like me, who is not obviously brilliant at any one thing, the challenge is to just keep going and to not give in to those occasional moments where you think, God almighty, the world really does not need what I do. There are so many other people who do everything that I do better than I. I should just pack it in. Have you ever seriously considered packing it in? Yeah, sure. Loads. Yeah? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I've got lots of fantasies about what I would do if I packed it in. What would be your alternative career if you did pack it in? Well, I used to think I would just run a bar. I used to be a bartender for a long time and I enjoyed that. So I used to think about going to somewhere like New Zealand or something and open a bar in the middle of nowhere. You know, I didn't think about how it would work financially or anything. I just thought, yeah, I'll run a bar and I'll just play really good music and (laughs) drink loads of booze and (laughs) chat with people. (laughs) But I don't know how realistic that is. The older I get, the more I think actually, you know, I'd be pretty happy working in the woods or something. And or with animals. <laughs> That's what I think in my low moments. But yeah, I would say that the trick is keep on keeping on. I would make an exception for thieves and murderers. I would say give in to the impulse to maybe switch career. I, one of the things you mentioned in the last page of your book is, is that you suffer from low self-esteem and high self-regard, yeah. which I loved. as a, I've never seen that written down like that. Any tips for anyone that feels the same way? <laughs> the dad half of my brain would say, get over yourself, sort your shit out. My dad would not have said, sort your shit out, but something like that. Get a grip, get some CBT, remind yourself that you're pretty lucky and that you have a choice 
about how to respond to adversity and bad luck, if your choice is always to think that it's the end of the world and that, oh, poor you, then that's going to be your reality. And, you know, that is much easier said than done, obviously. And I'm no genius at it. But I do think it's true. Just final question, Adam. I listened to your Robbie Williams podcast at the weekend. The bit where you played him shoebox, which was a pastiche on Rudebox, (laughs) I thought could have gone either way. Can you just, for our listeners that won't have heard that, just just explain what happened and then just explain how you felt as you pressed the play button on shoebox. (laughs) Well, I did a podcast with Robbie Williams and we were put in touch by the journalist John Ronson. I was a bit sceptical because I was never a fan. In fact, I used to actively get annoyed by Robbie Williams at the height of his fame towards the end of the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s. And he had a song called Rude Box that came out in, I think, 2006, maybe around then. And at the time, I was on XFM with Joe Cornish. And I (laughs) I heard Rude Box and I just thought it was so offensively shit. (laughs) And it sounded like a a really cynical exercise in trying to be a bit cool and trying to not really give a shit, but also trying to do the kind of Robbie Williams thing. I just thought, okay, I've had enough. (laughs) And so I spent quite a while doing a spoof version. This guy called Ozzy Miso made me a backing track sound alike. And so I sang all these lyrics that were taking the piss out of Rude Box. And I think I played it on XFM. I can't remember. I had a few versions that I made, some more. It is comedy other. genius. It's a great piss take. Well, it's the kind of thing that I didn't do that often because I don't, I don't think it's that good to be negative and to bring people down and to take the piss out of them in that way, really. That was one of the times that I gave in to that impulse. So when I had the opportunity to talk to Robbie, I read a whole book about him and I thought, actually, there is much more to this guy than I always assumed. I think he's quite an interesting person and a much nicer person as well than I than I kind of imagined he might be from his public image. And so I thought, well, I do want to talk to him on the podcast, but I don't want to be disingenuous. And I, you know, I want to admit to him that I was someone who felt conflicted about him at various points. And I also wanted to kind of um, confess to him that I'd done this piss take song and it seemed to me that by the end of the conversation like I didn't know I was definitely going to play it to him I thought well let's see how this goes and if he seems like he's cool and he's up for it and he's not going to be upset by it then I'll play it to him and by the end of the conversation I felt that he would be okay with it but I was still nervous and uh, (laughs) I played it to him across the zoom line and I could hear him sort of chuckling by the end of it, he was fine, and it was good. And then he sent me an email afterwards saying that he'd enjoyed it. There was a definite big piece of jeopardy at that moment when you pressed play. I, I wasn't sure how it was going to go, but um, I guess it was a ballsy move to play it to him, and Chufty liked it. Adam, thank you so much. I could talk to you all day. I appreciate you giving us the time, and thank you for being the first guest on the second Season Ride Do Lectures podcast. Adam Braxton, Thanks for thank having you. me, Gav, and all the best with it, man. Take care. You've been listening to The Do Podcast with me, Gav Thompson. Please feel free to leave us a review or subscribe or rate us. And feel free to drop me a line with any feedback or comments or suggestions to gav at thedolectures.co.uk. 
Season two episodes will be released fortnightly on a Friday. Episode two is Eleanor Tweddle, who has just released a book about why being made redundant or losing your job could actually be the best thing that ever happened to you. Very timely, and we have a great chat about that, so please tune in for that one. And then episode three is the fabulous Sue Perkins telling us about some of the things she's had to overcome to become as amazing as she is today. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Cheers, bye. Bye.